Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with breaking news from the January 6th committee, which has issued subpoenas to five more people involved in the planning of the so-called Stop the Steal rally, including marquee names like conspiracy monger Alex Jones and Trump confidant Roger Stone. Another subpoena targets uh, other subpoena targets include rally organizers Dustin Stockman and his fiance Jennifer Lawrence, as well as current Trump spokesman Taylor Budowich. Alex Jones stoked the big lie for months on his radio show and was instrumental in helping Trump pull off the rally at the ellipse. As The Wall Street Journal first reported, he was key to its financing, helping to secure a large donation from the heiress to the public supermarket chain. He later said the donation covered 80 percent of the total cost. The committee also cites a video in which Jones says he was directed by the White House to lead the march to the Capitol, where he was told that Donald Trump would meet the group. In other words, he was literally given marching orders by the Trump White House. Here's that video. The White House told me three days before, we're going to have you lead the march. The Secret Service, before Trump finishes 30 minutes before or so, will lead you to a point, take you out of the front row, and lead you to the place where they want you to start the march. And Trump will tell people, go and I'm going to meet you at the Capitol. Hmm. OK, meanwhile, the committee's subpoena of Roger Stone notes that he was in D.C. to speak at rallies in support of Trump and also solicited donations from supporters to pay for security for his appearance at the Stop the Steal event. As The New York Times reported last winter, six people associated with the Oath Keepers served as bodyguards to Stone just before they laid siege to the Capitol. At least one has since been arrested. In a statement, committee chair Benny Thompson said we need to know who organized planned, paid for, and received funds related to those events, as well as what communications organizers had with officials in the White House and Congress. We believe the witnesses we subpoenaed today have relevant information, and we expect them to cooperate fully. Today's subpoena brings the total number of witnesses and entities under subpoena by the committee to 40, and it's a sign that the committee's work isn't slowing down anytime soon. With me now is Joyce Vance, a former U.S. attorney and Kurt Bardella, advisor to the DNC and the DCCC. Thank you very much for being here, my friends. And Joyce Vance, let me start with you. So we go through this. The, we're getting a little more specific now. We're now talking about the, fun, the funding and the financing of these events that led to what we saw happen on January 6th. But there's also a little bit more. So Taylor Budowitz, let's go to him first. He is he's Trump's current spokesman, spokesperson. Um, in their subpoena, the committee notes, it says that you, Mr. Budowich, solicited a 501c4 organization to conduct a social media and advertising campaign to encourage people to attend the rally. The select committee has reason to believe your efforts included directing the 501c organization approximately $200,000 from a source or sources that was not disclosed to the organization to pay for advertising. What would be the significance of figuring out who funded this whole thing? Right. You know, prosecutors love to follow the money, Joy, and apparently now Congress does, too, because you can learn a lot. You learn the important elements of who wanted to do something, 
what they wanted to do and what they were willing to do to get there. So this has been, I think, a piece of this puzzle from the get-go. There was reporting early on that the Republican Attorney General's Association was also involved in making robocalls to solicit people to attend the rallies. Well, why do you want to bring this large group of people to Washington? What was the purpose behind that? Who funded it? What conversations were had? Are there emails? Is there a paper trail? A lot of different pieces of the puzzle snap into place when you follow the money. You know, and Kurt, anybody who's watched the film Get Me Roger Stone, really everyone should watch it because in it, he he goes on at length <laughs> about how after Nixon, he wanted to find the perfect new Nixon and that in his mind, Donald Trump was the perfect person, right, to put in place because in his mind, he had the celebrity and all the ingredients that he needed to sort of be the kind of autocrat Roger Stone, I guess, has always dreamed of having as president. So in one of these letters, the letter to uh, Roger to, to Roger Stone um, and also the one with Alex Jones, they talk about our Ali Alexander. His name has come up before. Um, and so these are people who are working with somebody who has bragged about being a part of this whole thing. They're a part of it. What do you take from these letters and who actually has been subpoenaed in this case. You know, Joey, so much of the attention on the committee's work has been on who's not cooperating with the committee. I think what these new subpoenas and the way that they were phrased tells us is that there are a lot of people who are indeed cooperating with the committee and the evidence that they have acquired, the testimony that they have, the depositions that they've taken point a line very directly and clearly to these figures, including Alex Jones, Roger Stone, and some of the current people in Trump's orbit. And really, one of the things that really stood out to me, Joy, is what they're trying to get at is who communicated directly with the White House, who communicated directly with White House senior staff, with Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, with people in Trump's orbit, how much notice did the White House have about what was going to happen on January 6th? And were there concerns that were elevated to them about it being dangerous, about it being violent, about it being chaotic? Imagine if at the end of the day, this committee uncovers the reality that the Donald Trump White House knew an insurrection was going to happen in advance, and yet they did nothing to stop it. They did not deploy the resources needed to roll it back. They just sat there and let it happen. Reading these subpoenas, it makes me think that they have testimony and witnesses who have said to them there was information that was conveyed to the White House about the severity of what was going to happen, and the White House did nothing. Well, we know Roger Stone has a history of dirty tricks that involve sort of making sort of, uh, you know, kind of violent sort of looking attacks on the vote count. And he's a dirty trickster. It's what he does. Um, but on that point that you just made, Kurt, I want to I want to point to Joyce, uh, point, let Joyce deal with this question, because you do have two people who were subpoenaed right now who are not the marquee names. And they are Dustin Stockton and Jennifer Lawrence, um, their girlfriend and boyfriend. They were subpoenaed. They told ProPublica that they actually were concerned that it would get violent. A last minute march without a permit, with all the Metro, without, without all the Metro police that would usually be there to fortify the perimeter felt unsafe, Dustin Stockton said. And these people aren't there for a blanking flower contest, added Jennifer Lynn Lawrence. Stockton's fiance and co-organizer say they're there because they're angry. In the subpoena request to them, that is specifically pointed out that those concerns were, did go up to the White House. For doc, for Dustin Stockton, the question is whether or not he actually did talk to the White House and say that he was concerned that there could be violence. So it sounds like the answer to Kurt's question is probably yes. You know, it seems like the ultimate question is not did they talk to the White House? There's very little doubt that they did based on the way this is laid out in the subpoenas and other reporting we've seen. 
The real question is, what was the reaction from inside of the White House and who did they get it from? Was it Mark Meadows? Was it the former president himself? And the really tempting piece of information here that has, I I think, always begged this question is the fact that Trump did nothing on the day of the insurrection, watched television, by all of the reporting, was delighted with what he saw and didn't understand why the people around him in the White House weren't as happy, weren't as exhilarated by the insurrection as he was. So now Congress is going to find out what exactly was involved in that really odd behavior by the then sitting president. Was there this full layout in advance? Did everyone understand that this was going to happen or at least that it was a risk? This is the stuff that insurrection and sedition charges are made of, Joy. I mean, I know we're talking about Congress and not prosecutors, but at some point when the evidence is laid out in public, we'll know precisely what we had here. Right. I mean, Kurt, you have, you know, the sort of the bombast, you know, the people like Alex Jones, you have the dirty tricksters like Roger Stone, but you have also have people who are reporting up to the White House. You have the Defense Department. You have the Eastman memo. You have sort of him laying out this case for how you could actually overturn the election. It's hard not to see this as a pretty well-formulated plan to stop by any means necessary the conclusion of a peaceful transfer of power, to disrupt Congress so much with all sorts of chaos of every kind that it couldn't go on, right? That we could not have a peaceful transfer of power. It's it, it's sort of like we kind of know where this is going. The question is whether or not crimes were committed. And, and I wonder if you think it matters whether or not this does end up being about prosecution or whether it might be enough for the American people to just get a full narrative of what happened. Well, I think nothing's more important than getting a true, full, detailed accounting of what happened, why it happened, who knew what, when, and, and why certain things didn't happen, like the deploying of resources to stem the tide of what was going on in January 6th. But I'll tell you, Joy, there's a part of me that just feels very strongly that if planning a coup and paving the way for a domestic terrorist attack isn't criminal, what is in this country? I mean, th- th- this has to be a very clear standing by the United States of America that we are not going to tolerate the deliberate and calculated effort to overturn a free and fair election and to commit violence and mayhem. Because I'll tell you, if we don't do anything now, if we don't hold people accountable legally, then it's just going to tell everybody. It's like taking out a big billboard saying, do it again, do it bigger, make it more violent because nothing will happen to you if you do. I mean, we've said time again on this show, what happened on January 6th may just very well be a dress rehearsal for the future if we don't start getting the truth and holding people accountable. Democracy cannot be allowed to be injured this way without some sort of pushback, some sort of defense. That's what this committee is really about. And whether it plays well politically or not, I could really give a crap. This is the foundation of our country. And if we aren't willing to defend it and stand up for it, then there's really no point to it going forward. You know, and I guess that is the big question, Joyce. At what point is it illegal? Because you have these people who are bombastically claiming Donald Trump is going to remain president by any means necessary. They show up at these two different rallies. They do rallies on multiple days leading up to what happened. They clearly have in mind stopping the peaceful transfer of power, stopping Mike Pence from certifying the election results. That is very clear and it's very public. And then we saw what happened play out on television. At what point is it criminal? And I even think of the Publix heiress who gave all that money and who's now bankrolling Ron DeSantis and backing him and others. She's still out there. 
involved in our politics? At what point does financing this, planning this and participating in this become a crime? So there is more than enough, much more than enough for serious investigation on multiple fronts here. And frankly, we don't know. DOJ may be fully engaged in a criminal investigation. They may have decided that they want to take a pass on this for whatever reason. But investigation is fully predicated here. The difference between investigation and prosecution is this. The government bears the the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt in a criminal trial. You have to marshal your evidence. You have to make sure that it's sufficient to get that conviction and that there are no legal impediments, nothing like the First Amendment or other defenses a defendant could raise. But that said, if at some point Congress, in collecting the evidence, if it causes, ca- uh, crosses that Rubicon of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and if DOJ does not act, that will forever be a dark mark, I think, on our democracy. People have to have confidence in our criminal justice system. And we see a lot of cases prosecuted for crimes that are far less serious than insurrection and sedition. So while I'm mindful of the importance of not indicting cases that you can't convict in. By the same token, there are some cases that have to be indicted. I note that insurrection, which carries only a maximum 10-year penalty, also carries a penalty of barring anyone who's convicted from future Mm -hmm. service in public office. So that would seem to be something that would serve us all very well. At a minimum, though, DOJ at some point is going to have to step out of its usual box of being quiet, and it's going to have to explain its decision to the American yeah. people if it wants people to continue to have confidence. Yeah, I, I, I second that. Um, absolutely. Thank you very much. Joyce Vance, Kurt Bardella, thank you. Up next on The Readout, in the aftermath of the Rittenhouse verdict, the right goes all in on vigilantism and violence. Plus, you can't create the situation. And they go, I was defending myself. You just can't do it. The prosecutor shreds the argument of self-defense from Ahmaud Arbery's killers during closing arguments. And tonight's absolute worst, with an audience in the millions, is taking right-wing propaganda to a dangerous new level. And two mainstream Republicans say they've had enough. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Now to the question dividing America. Kyle Rittenhouse, hero or vigilante? Days after Rittenhouse was acquitted of all charges, including double homicide, the American right, including some of the most craven, openly inflammatory bomb throwers in the Republican Party, celebrated the gunning down of three fellow Americans, leaving two of them dead, like it was the Super Bowl. 
Some of these professional right-wing trolls who get paid with your tax money as political representatives are now fighting over who gets to hire Rittenhouse as an intern. Keeping in mind that members of his own family wouldn't intern for Paul Gosar because they believe he's an unstable white nationalist. And then we saw Republican Hitler tourist Madison Cawthorn react to the verdict by, what else, encouraging more violence. Kyle Rittenhouse is not guilty, my friends. You have a right to defend yourselves. Be armed, be dangerous, and be moral. Even Rittenhouse's criminal defense attorney called it disgusting that some of these Republicans have tried to cash in on his client's acquittal. Meanwhile, these same grifters who would use the killing of human beings to rake in a few more clicks and a little more pack cash are also putting Rittenhouse's victims, two of whom cannot speak for themselves because they are dead, on trial. Or just erasing them altogether. Three people were shot when Rittenhouse crossed state lines into Kenosha with an assault-style weapon equipped for war. Many people still don't even know their names. Gage Grosskreutz is the lone survivor who testified that he confronted Rittenhouse with a gun because he thought he was an active shooter. Then Rittenhouse nearly shot his arm off and was acquitted for it. The other two men were fatally shot by Rittenhouse, who are named Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber. And with me now is Anthony Huber's father, John Huber. So, uh, Mr. Huber, thank you for being here. Uh, I've, I've spent some time today sitting with this Washington Post piece that went through a, a, a really detailed timeline of what happened the night your son was killed. And I want to wish you condolences for losing your son. Um, but it also talked a little bit about his life, which was tough. It was difficult. He had a lot of issues, personal issues with his mom and hoarding in the house and other things. Talk a little bit about your son and, and what he was dealing with when he was alive. Yeah, I don't know where that information came from about his home life. He he had a good mom and, uh, you know, he had a good family. He had an incident with his brother, got out of the hand, and the mom called 911. And like anyone should, it got out of hand. And from there, it just got worse, you know. But he was a good kid. He wouldn't hurt anybody. Now, one of the other things, and I do, I did get that, that he was a skateboarder and that was sort of the thing that brought him joy and happiness was skateboarding. That was his outlet. Um, He was a part of some of these protests, partly because he knew Jacob Blake, who was the man, the black man who was shot by police multiple times and left paralyzed. So he knew him. Is that your understanding? Right. Yes. And so, and he expressed his, his, for what happened to Jacob Blake. Yeah. And so in your mind, why do you think he was there that day? Well, for one thing is uh, he he loved to skateboard. He was there skateboarding. There was probably a thousand other people on the street that night. And that's his that's where he skateboarded. You know, he had every right to be there. And, And uh, you know, he was he was there helping people. Yeah. And in your mind, it was your son the type of person who would have confronted somebody he saw have a gun? Is that something that reads with what you knew about your son? You know, we um, it was a pretty dangerous and heroic attempt by him. And and uh, I, I don't think I would have had the, the nerve to do that, what he did. And he was trying to stop a shooter. He was trying to stop an active shooter. He, they all saw Rosenbaum get killed. Everyone saw that. 
Everyone that was there saw Rosenbaum get killed. That kid turned around and mowed down Rosenbaum. He just mowed him down. I don't know what videos these other people are watching, and I don't know how the jury came to that, except for the fact that the judge had his hand on the scale of justice, that I saw a video where he just turned and mowed that guy down. Rosenbaum didn't touch him. And, you- and from there, he became an active shooter, and he ran away. He ran away from a murder scene like a coward, and he was just trying to get away, and he used deadly force to get away. That's it. And what would you say if you could talk to this judge and to this jury about the decision that, I mean, you could say they collectively made because the judge made it pretty clear that that was what he supported happening. Um, I don't know how, how they were able to decide that, that Rittenhouse was in danger, that his life was threatened. Because a little guy was screaming at obscenities at him, yeah. he went there with a gun to be a menace and and to be a big man with a gun where he didn't belong. And what did he think was going to happen? What did the police think was going to happen with this little kid out on the street with an AR-15? Nobody questioned him because he was on their side, because he picked their side. Little white kid with an AR-15. Oh, he's on our side. We don't have to question him. Matter of fact, we'll coordinate with him. Give him a water bottle and say, good job, kid. Now go home. Oh, you killed somebody? We're not interested. And I guess my last question to you before I have to let you go is, is what is the family, what is your family dealing with right now? I mean, you're having to absorb the loss of your son and this verdict. What are you... How was the family handling it? When, when, we heard, when we heard the verdict, it was like he got killed all over again. We had to relive this all over again. And every time we seen it on TV and every time it was brought up and all these attacks on, on him and us, those people should be ashamed of themselves. And, and we feel like we've been raped. We've been raped by half of the country that supported him. And those people should be ashamed of themselves. He's a murderer. That guy is a murderer. He murdered two people, and he has two murders on his conscience. And he doesn't have a conscience. I believe he lied on the stand, and that that Richards guy, in order to say, uh, oh, well, um, you know, we don't promote the violence that the gun people are saying, but he's the one who called in the gun people to help his cause. It shouldn't have been about the gun or it shouldn't have been a Republican Democrat issue. Nobody's wanting their guns. Nobody wants their guns. What are they afraid of? You know, and the president shouldn't have spoke up about it either. Trump had no business weighing in on it. You know, I, I stopped supporting him that, that day he offended me when he said, oh, looks like self-defense. We didn't even know all the details. Nobody even seen all the videos. And he spoke up on it. Who does he think he is? An expert? You know, I, I lost what? all respect for him. 
I want to let you talk back to Marjorie Taylor Greene, because Marjorie Taylor Greene, she was tweeting at me and, you know, thinking that she was hurting me. I, I'm a, I do TV for a living. That, you're not going to hurt me by tweeting at me. But she also disparaged your son and the other two victims, Joseph Rosenbaum and Gage Grosskreutz. And she called them a child rapist, a woman beater, both convicted, both white, both men, who, they, who she says tried to kill a 17-year-old. And she was referring to Mr. Rosenbaum having had a criminal record, having, you know, spent a lot of time in prison, having had a lot of issues, personal issues of abuse of himself uh, and abuse and was really in prison for a while, dealing with a lot of um, mental health issues. You, you're saying that the things that were said about your son having some issues as well, legal issues, et cetera, you're saying those aren't true. Um, what do you make of her attacking your son and the other person who died, who was killed? Uh, man, I hope she's never sitting in our shoes. I hope she never has to deal with the death of a child and, and then have all this controversy and scandal around it. So we can't even grieve his death. We haven't even gotten to grieve yet. And, yeah. and how do they know? What, what does she think? It's okay to kill people that have something on their record like that? So let's just shoot them in the street. That's what she's saying. She's saying, okay, go kill them in the street. Go kill them in the street because they have a record for being a, a child rapist or or because my my son got in a fight with with you know everyone in his house. <laughs> yeah. You know, he did. Yeah. He, his brother used to pick on him. He finally fought back. You know, and and Anthony was a pacifist. He was a pacifist and, and eventually he, he just, he got mad about it, you know, yeah. but this stuff with, with Rittenhouse, he was trying to save people. He was trying to stop a, a mass shooter. That's what it was. John Huber, thank you for spending some time with us this evening. Um, we really appreciate your time. And again, our condolences to you and your family for your loss. Thank you. Thank you, Joy. Thank you so much. And joining me now, Michael Steele, former chairman of the RNC and host of the Michael Steele podcast. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting to a little bit late, but I, I, I couldn't, you know, he, he, he's so emotional. Um, and this is a loss. And, you know, what really strikes me, Michael, and, you know, you and I are friends, so we, I'm going to just talk to you like a friend. It, it is so crazy to me that people can cheer like they won a football game over two people being dead that they didn't even know. They don't know anything about that man, Mr. Huber. They don't know anything about his son. You know, the Washington Post, he said they didn't even know <laughs> that the stories they told right. about his son weren't even true. Right. He knows his son, and his son is gone. And they're out there, Madison Cawthorn and Margie Three Names, and these people who don't even do their jobs. They don't even do it. They don't even work. They get our tax money for, for doing nothing. Are out there tweeting and yeah. thinking they're hurting me. I know. Go on. Yeah. Your, your 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 thoughts. I, no, I I saw that I saw that tweet from Stupid, and I just I just laughed at it because she reflects the soullessness of my party. Uh, you heard the anguish of a dad uh, who has has stated several times that he and his family have not had an opportunity to even grieve. They've had to deal with the trial um, in which. Uh, you know, they felt and I think uh, casual observers would agree uh, that the scales of justice had a little extra weight on them, <laughs> not so much in favor of of uh, 
you know, their son's death in terms of uh, dealing with that. When you start the trial by saying, well, you have to refer to him not as a victim, refer to his son not as a victim, but as a yeah. rioter and a looter. He was a skateboarder. That's where he always skateboarded. All these people came into his backyard that night. Um, so I, I think that this this reflection of of attitude that we have from the Carthorns and the Marjorie Taylor Greens, um, as a nation, we need to repudiate it. Um, you were right to ignore it because they're trying to draw you out. And, you know, it's like, I just tell them straight up, y'all don't want any of this. Okay. <laughs> y'all don't want any of any Joy Reid to get up, to get up in your, in your business. Trust me on that one. Okay. Um, because that gets ugly for you real fast. Um, but they think that they can grift, they can lie, they can put out this kind of, uh, hot, ugly rhetoric. Uh, and get rewarded for it. And that, for me, Joy, is the biggest thing here. There are no consequences for these fools. There's no consequences at all. There's none inside the party, as we've seen. There's none outside the party. I don't I don't see where the public, um, you know, in the Tucker Carlson situation, uh, Fox should be shut down. You got two, two well-established conservatives uh, who who just like you know this is this is just crazy what's happening over here and yet yeah. the checks keep rolling in. Yeah. So if, there if, we are. If I if I was out doing a secret documentary on on a <laughs> on a story that I was reporting on here, we have a standards and practices department, right? And when I tell you I would be walked out of here, it is not it is unreal. Anyway, uh, Michael Steele, thank you very much. Really appreciate you. Nah, thank appreciate you. you. Thank you, Michael Steele. Still ahead. The prosecutor kicks off closing arguments in the trial of three men accused of killing Ahmaud Arbery with a blistering presentation. More on her arguments and the defense team's kind of ridiculous counter arguments next. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Ran away from him for five minutes. That's what he did. With his hands out of his sides and those baggy shorts he had on. No weapon, no threats, no way to call for help, didn't even have a cell phone on him. The bottom line is, but for their actions, but for their decisions, but for their choices, Ahmad Arby would be alive. Closing arguments began today in the trial of the three white men accused of murdering Ahmaud Arbery. The defense, at least for Travis and Greg McMichael, are relying on the claims of citizen's arrest and self-defense. But any normal, rational person, their story sounds ridiculous. 
They cornered this 25-year-old black man who in all rationality ran from two trucks full of white men armed with shotguns who they had not seen him commit any crime, which they had to have actually just witnessed in order to make a citizen's arrest under the now repealed Georgia law. One of the defense lawyers actually tried to claim that despite all of those facts, it was the McMichaels who were the ones in fear for their lives, even as Travis McMichael pointed his shotgun at the unarmed Arbery. Aggravated assault, by the way, is a felony that can be committed by the use of fists. Fists are that weapon. And right now, as Ahmad Arbery is running toward Travis McMichael, he could have a gun and he definitely has fists. He is afraid that he will beat him with his fists or whatever weapon he might have. And he's scared. The mind reels. Joining me now, David Henderson, civil rights attorney and former prosecutor, and Katie Fang, MSNBC legal contributor. Let's throw the, the charges up here. They're facing each of one count of malice murder. And the, I thought the prosecutor was brilliant. She really walked through explaining each of these counts, felony murder, aggravated assault, false imprisonment, meaning they cornered her, cornered uh, Ahmaud Arbery with the car, criminal attempt to commit false imprisonment, chasing him and attempting to falsely imprison him. Really well done. But I feel like this is a case, David Henderson. I'm going to start with you on this because you're our former prosecutor. This to me was the case. Here, here, here it is. Um, this is a cut to. You expect when you're committing felonies, people are going to fight back, right? The convenience store clerk's entitled to fight back, right? Imagine if armed robbers could come in and go, well, I had to defend myself against the victim of my crime. Could you imagine if that was the law? Right? I mean, but isn't that what they're saying? How dare Mr. Arbery defend himself against their four felonies? Okay, Linda Dunikowski could be a teacher, because that was really brilliantly done. But here's the problem, David. That was the exact prosecution case in the George Zimmerman trial. That George mm -hmm. Zimmerman chased a 17-year-old boy who was walking around with some iced tea and some candy for his brother. He followed him, said, oh, well, there was crimes in the neighborhood. I was worried. And then chased him down. The police said, don't chase him. He still did chase him. Then they confront each other. And because the teenager defends himself, he says, well, I was fearful for my, my life, shoots him. That's the same case and Zimmerman walked. And in America, the absurd can work if you are a certain kind of person. Your thoughts? No, Joy, that's right. And honestly, what stands out to me even more when we compare it to the Zimmerman trial is not just the facts and the arguments, but the composition of the jury. If Correct. there's anything that concerns me here, that's what actually worries me. Now, she did a lot of things right, though, that we didn't see in the Rittenhouse trial. And the first one is she walked the jury down through the charge, basically explaining, here's how you vote on each charge. Here's the reason why. That was critical. She did two things that were it was harder to notice, but that are really important. She preempted the defense by doing what a smart trial lawyer will do, saying, hey, judge, I'm looking over at their table. I'm noticing some things in their notes that make me think they're about to argue some things they're not allowed to argue. So I need you to go ahead and shut that down. The defense was clearly thrown off their game. I think that's the reason why. Last point, in closing argument, you're not really arguing. You're just appealing to the jurors that are already on your side by giving them information they need to go back there and fight for you. I thought her Super Bowl analogy was great. If you're on the team, you get a ring. The reason why is because I have a hard time seeing a world where Travis McMichael doesn't get convicted. But that's less true for Gregory McMichael, and it's even less true for William Bryan. And so focusing on that law of parties was critically important. I think she did that. See, OK, so, I, I, yeah, I mean, uh, all right, I'm thinking this is going to be nullification because they're just going to be like, he looks like us. And we, we, we relate to him. We relate to them and not to Ahmad Aubrey. <laughs> um, here's the defense's attempt to make their case. This is cut three. Um, play it. 
Travis also told you that when he came face to face with Ms. Arbery, even though he didn't speak, he looked very angry, he looked very upset, clenching his teeth, but not saying a word. To throw this paper. They also said there were two sets of decision makers. Aubrey was the other decision. Literally, the guy who's running from the two trucks full of white men with shotguns, it seems like a scene out of 1953. That guy is the threat. Oh, your, your thoughts, Katie. <laughs> the black guy is the threat. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, think about it. It's the best way, if you're the defense attorney, to try to get your acquittal is to dehumanize the victim. Let's just make the victim something, not a person. Let's make it an object or something that it's okay that we disposed of that threat, that threat, right? And, you know, Greg McMichael's lawyer, she, she sent me to places I'm not supposed to go. When she said that the reason why Arbery is dead is because he ran. So let me get this straight. He ran for his life. And apparently the McMichaels grabs their go bag because remember, according to Gregory McMichael's attorney, He's a good neighbor. Well, with good neighbors like that, who needs jury executioners, right? Or executioners at this point. But that go bag must have been gun, uh, pistol, shotgun. I mean, I was waiting for them to say that they also, you know, came with their hood and all that other stuff and a, and a rope to lynch, right? Because that's that law that they're relying upon, an antiquated law that was tied to white slave owners being able to hunt down runaway slaves. That is exactly what that antiquated law is tied to. And that is the important law that David talked about, that the prosecutor talked about. The idea that a citizen's arrest has to be for an offense that is committed in front of you or that you have immediate knowledge of. Well, the only knowledge that anybody there had was the fact that 12 days earlier on some grainy surveillance photo, Mr. Arbery was seen inside of a home that was under construction. And Joy and Reed, remember the following too. The 911 transcript, it militates toward a conviction in this case. When they finally got around to calling 911, when they were effecting this alleged citizen's arrest, they didn't say that I just saw a man committing a burglary. I am chasing a man who just committed a burglary. They said, there's a black man running down the street. How is that a crime? Well, it's only a crime in certain parts of America. And if this jury does not nullify, because that is a fear that I have, that the fact that these men are facing federal charges as well, that maybe the state jury says, you know what, I'm going to leave it to the feds to have to take care of this. Mm. That is a distinct possibility. But Roddy Bryan moved to sever this morning. He moved to sever his case from the remaining defendants. And so there's a distancing that's happening mm. right now. And despite mm. this idea that if you go to the bank and somebody kills somebody during that robbery, you're all guilty of that robbery and that murder. I'm worried as well as David that maybe they're going to make a delineation between each right. of these defendants. Split them up, split them up. It, it's, it, well, right. We shall see what happens. All I think of when I watch this trial is Emmett Till. Because we, we saw how that turned out. They chased down a 14-year-old child, killed him, and walked into court and walked out in 10 minutes. That's how that worked. David Henderson, Katie Fang, we hope it's different this time. We really do hope and pray. Thank you. Still to come, re resignations at Fox News because of an absolute worst, repeat offenders, absurd, and dangerous conspiracy theories. Can you guess who that is? And there are no signs that the Murdochs are willing to rein him in. We'll be right back. Internal divisions at Fox News boiled over and exploded into public view this weekend. Longtime Fox commentator Stephen Hayes and Jonah Goldberg resigned their positions in protest of the network's complete lack of editorial standards. 
The final straw was the release of Tuckums Carlson's online documentary series on the January 6th insurrection called Patriot Purge. And while we've all known that Fox News has been problematic for a long, long time, they've really dialed it up to 11 with this one. According to PolitiFact, Carlson's documentary describes the attack on the United States Capitol as a false flag operation contrived to frame, trap, and purge Trump voters in a new war on terror. As Hayes himself told The New York Times, particularly disturbing was the imagery of waterboarding and suggestions that half the country is going to be subject to this kind of treatment. If that's not scary enough, Tuckums Carlson reportedly tells his audience that we're in an actual war literally claiming that soldiers and paramilitary agencies are going to be hunting down American citizens. That is not only false, it's dangerous. And with the release of this documentary, Fox News has officially completed its metamorphosis from a mere conservative news channel to a right-wing propaganda outlet. In fact, far bigger names than Hayes and Goldberg have registered their complaints, including veteran political anchors Brett Baer and Chris Wallace, who shared their objections with Fox leadership and also aired their own segments that refuted Carlson's claims. That is according to NPR, which reports that their objections rose to Lachlan Murdoch, the CEO of Fox Corporation. But the problem is that Fox News exists in a media environment where they are no longer the only game in town. They once held a virtual monopoly over right-wing news, but they're now in a universe alongside OAN and Newsmax and Sinclair Broadcasting who are actively competing to be the furthest right and Trumpiest networks of them all. That's why Fox News and all that it represents is the absolute worst, not just tonight, but every night. They are literally willing to light this country on fire just to stay ahead of their rivals and keep the profits rolling in. And Carlson's documentary is proof of that. It is so unmoored from reality that they're stoking the danger of actual violence. And that is coming up next. Fox News has created a whole industry around denying the reality of January 6th. But with Tuckums Carlson's new documentary, Patriot Purge, they're not just whitewashing what happened. They are sowing irrational fears and dangerous disinformation. As Stephen Hayes and Jonah Goldberg wrote upon resigning this weekend, the documentary's message is clear. The U.S. government is targeting patriotic Americans in the same manner that it used to target al-Qaeda. This is not happening, and we think it's dangerous to pretend that it is. It comes as public officials are increasingly being terrorized by threats of violence. It's become so bad that some lawmakers are limiting how much they interact with the public. Joining me now is Eric Bowler, founder and editor of PressRun.media. And Eric, you know, this is the point where this isn't media criticism at this point. What Fox News is doing is that they are inciting their viewers and, and essentially creating a false reality for them to live in that feels like it can't do anything but incite violence. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you know, if if you you know the the um, the Jonathan Carl interview with Trump a few months ago, and he was saying, "Hey, if you think the if you think the election was stolen, of course you're going to be violent. Of course you're right. going to storm the Capitol." And so this has become we're beyond the big lie. Uh, this has become the fundamental worldview, and people like Tucker Carlson are pushing it now. Goldberg and Hayes, you know, them uh, resigning, that's not going to change anything at Fox News. Tucker Carlson runs Fox News because Tucker Carlson has the biggest ratings. That's how it works over there. Uh, so if he's going to glorify a deadly insurrection, that that becomes the performa uh, de facto uh, position of Fox News. But it's important why they are resigning. 
you know, they they've been part of this community for 20, 25 years. If they watch Tucker Carlson and they say, oh, this is going to lead to street violence. This is going to lead to guns. This is going to lead to vigilante violence. They know the mechanics of the right wing media. They know how that mob works. So I think it is important to listen to them in this case. Do I think they could have resigned 15 years ago? Of course. Do you know when yeah. Fox News was saying Obama was born in Kenya? Yeah, that would have been a good time to leave leave the building as well. Uh, but again, um, nothing's going to change, unfortunately, because uh, Fox News functions as a sewer. It's always going to function as a sewer as long as Rupert Murdoch owns it. And there, you know, I think of the guy who was at a, a public meeting saying, when do we get to use the guns? Like, exactly. this is how their viewers are going to sound. How much of this do you think is about the competition from Sinclair Broadcasting, which literally still calls Donald Trump like the president? Like, they still treat him yeah. as if he's the president. You've got, you know, OAN, which still treats Donald Trump like he's the president. You've got all of these other Newsmax, which used to be sort of a right wingish, but not like this. Right. How, yeah. how much do you think this is about protecting their money? from these other outlets, these other sort of different forms of, of the cocaine. They want to do the, the more pure form. <laughs> it's a big part of it. Uh, you know, late last year, I, I predicted Fox News was going to be its worst this year, specifically because it will never allow itself to be outflanked by the far, far right. It's never worried about it up until this, you know, the big lie, the re-election, Newsmax OAN came in and say, hey, you know, they totally embraced uh, Trump, you know, with the big lie. Uh, and they have continued to grow. Newsmax continues to grow. Uh, they, you know, they basically sponsored that Arizona charade recall. So Fox News has real competition on the far right in the way they never did. And like I said, they will never, ever allow themselves to be outflanked to the far right. They don't care how many people they kill talking about a COVID hoax. They don't care how uh, seriously they, they uh, injure free and fair elections in this country. They have no they have no qualms. I mean, this is, as you said, this is beyond conservative media. This is a threat to our democracy and they know it. And you have people like Paul Ryan who sit on the board, sort of norm core Republicans who are looking the other way, clearly not doing anything, Lachlan Murdoch, et cetera. What can be done? Because they don't have to actually have commercials. What people don't understand no. is when you have basic cable, your basic cable is paying for Fox. So you can't get at them that way. They have no advertisers in some of these shows. They're just promos for my pillow. What exactly. can the public do if, well, if the people if the public feels that they're dangerous? What can people even do about it? It's very problematic. If we go just quickly, if you go back to Bill O'Reilly, Glenn Beck, they lost their shows because they lost all their advertisers. That Correct. doesn't work anymore. Tucker Carlson does not have a single blue chip advertiser left. It is a dollar a holler over there, whoever they can get. Uh, but as you say, you and I are you and I are subsidizing Fox News with our with our uh, cable bills every month. So it, th we, we've kind of lost that weapon in our arsenal to go after advertisers and hey, do you want to be associated with that? Every ma every major player on Madison Avenue said, no, no, we do not want to be associated with that. So they're, they're, they're cocooned. They have uh, Tucker Carlson has Lachlan Murdoch's ear. He's got the support of, of Rupert Murdoch. And it's a really difficult position to go to your question. What do we do? We keep waiting for, for, for honorable people to do the right thing. And it's almost impossible mm -hmm. to get anyone. I mean, yes, again, Goldberg and Hayes resigned. You know, they're barely on because everyone knows that they don't support Trump. So they're not right. even they're not even invited they're over there. On. So it's, right. it's 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 tough. And, the, and as you and I will play you for a moment, the media also uh, the other journalists try to still treat them as a normal journalistic outfit uh, when clearly there's something else going on over there than journalism. Eric Bowler, thank super you. quick. Democrats should not be on Fox News ever. Do In, not appear on Fox indeed, News. Indeed. Thank you.
Thank you, Eric Bowler. That's tonight's readout. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.